This is an ABC podcast. This is Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber. What games did you play as a child and where did you play them? Growing up in a Tongan village, Sione Tepani Mangisi played marbles. Later in life, after retirement, he reflected on these early memories and turned them into dual language books in the hopes of passing on and preserving the Tongan language. Mapumoi Mango, or Marbles and Mangoes, is the first of his Manatu Mele, Sweet Memories series. His books are for reading out loud, sharing with family and strengthening cultural ties. Maloalele Tapani. Maloalele Bobby. Tapani, what did the mango trees look like where you grew up? My mango trees in Tonga and the ones I have in my mind and have in my books, although I don't have photographs of them there, are huge, huge trees. And um, the Pacific Island listeners would know about the type of mangoes I'm talking about. The ones I'm talking about in Tonga, which um, provided the canopy that uh, we played under in the village of Havatolo in Iifo, Tongatapu, it would, it would take three grown men to hold hands in a circle to take the circumference of, the, of, of this tree. So when I was in Tonga and, and I was uh, there, the, the, the mango trees were already as big as I am telling you now, and they still are the same, 70, like when I grew up 70, 70 years ago, 75 years ago. So I would imagine you add another 75 years or 100 years to that, and that would be when they were planted. They are huge things, and when they, when, when they fruit in the summer, coming up the mango season now in, in, in the Pacific, the one that I'm talking about in particular, but that's not the only one, it's right through the, the whole of, of, of Tonga, uh, it would bear, oh, hundreds of, mango, of mangoes. So, yeah, this, that's the, and these mango trees, they, 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 they have a very large canopy. Again, the one I'm talking about here will stretch for probably uh, 20 or 30 metres, so because of that, there is it, the grass doesn't grow there and you have a bare ground. And, and uh, these bare pieces of ground underneath the mango tree, that's where we sort of clear it up a little bit uh, and, and, and uh, draw a, a circle there, probably four or five metres in that circle. We put what your contribution, what we play for, let's say, we, to start a game, we put in uh, one or two or three or four or five marbles each. Maybe they were, maybe, I don't know. They can be played by just two people or um, up to 15, maybe, you know, but typically would have six to 10 people playing it at the time. So, what did you use for marbles in the 50s before the glass ones? When I was playing marbles there uh, in the 50s. Uh, I was, uh, you know, 10 thereabouts uh, to 12. But we were playing with marbles mainly. But there was a, but for a while when I was younger, in, you know, again, early 50s, there was a, a fruit called fetal in Tongan. 
I don't know the English name for it, but it's about the size of a, about five or ten, five, five or six mil round. That's the one we used to, to, to play shoot with in our hand. And, and these ones, you have to um, climb up a very big tree, a fatal tree, and shake these things down, or you just throw six of them to knock them off the branches because they hang down in big, big branches, in, in, in big bunches, you know, like a, a coconut bunch in the sense, imagine a coconut bunch, but instead of having great big coconuts, you, you have these like, like, like small mandarins, but they're round. But before then, uh, the candle nut, it's called in Taiwan tui tui, quite, uh, and, and they use uh, uh, that for um, uh, uh, perfume. Um, but this, this other one is about the uh, other tree, the tui tui, is about the same size as Akata. Both of them were the only ones before the marble, the glass and the stone marbles arrived. That was the only ones that they used. There is also another one called uh, Fotulona and another one called Talatalahamua. They're all fruits, but much, much smaller. Uh, so those are the ones that we played with, you know, during my, my uh, some 10 years when I left home in 1966. Uh, Tapani, what was your favourite place in your childhood village? In the village? Well... <laughs> Tell you the truth, like like most other kids, you'd prefer to be at the neighbor's house because uh, that way you're too far away from your mom getting you, getting you to do all the household chores, you see? So... <laughs> <laughs> as well as lots of mangoes, there were also lots of flying foxes where you grew up. What are your memories of them? Well, in fact, our, our house, there was be about in the hundreds, uh, maybe 500 to 1,000. There is lots of them. Uh, there, the trees that they hang from are called in Tongan toa trees. They have uh, iron trees. They're as hard as iron. And, and, and it can carry these flying foxes. So they, they, the flying foxes are very, they, they're supposed to, to be there with some kind of mystical uh, thing, you know, uh, uh, stories attached to them. You're not supposed to catch them and, and eat them, but but you do. Uh, they are a source of food. We my my where I grew up, that was my grandfather's. Um, that's my namesake. We were grow, growing up in this. Um, the place would be about half an acre, and uh, and and we got about five of these great big trees, and from where this farm hundred or so flying foxes are, at dusk they they. They fly out to, to forage, and they fly out. And of course, this is a good time for them in the mango season. They they go there and they they eat the the fruit, and they you know it's good for pollination and uh, you know uh, spreading of the seedlings and things, so other mangoes can grow and all of that. Very eagle uh, friendly animals, uh, and, uh, but uh, you can catch them too and eat them. But don't disturb the the main hangout, if you like. You know. How did you catch them? Very very innovative uh, way of catching. <laughs> I mentioned to you the, the marble talatala amoa, and it's, it's um, talatala means uh, prickly, and and the the leaf of the talatala amoa is full of prickles. And what do you do? Or one of the ways that, uh, of catching the flying foxes is. 
with the Tantamo and the prickly leaves I'm talking about, you 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 get the the, the the prickly leaves and you're very carefully without tangling up, cutting yourselves and things, and tie them up. Imagine you know uh, a witch's broom, and with you you have a, a big long pole made out of uh, bamboo, uh, so it's light, and at the end you tie about half a meter full of these prickly things, you know. And and the reason why I say that I'm describing this, I describe this in the book because I actually saw these things happening, interact with it, you know, because the flying foxes staying in the sanctuary that my grandfather has provided. And the neighbor, the neighbor to the left has got another tree that's grown very close to our tree where the hangout of flying foxes are. And this guy would get up to this tree, top of this tree, and wait there till the flying foxes, the dust, would fly out. And when the flying foxes come up closer than, you know, where he's sitting, he just pulls up this, uh, this pole. And the flying foxes, in, in, you know, sudden scare of, because you see sitting in front of him, grabs it, see? He sticks to it. Just like, just like Velcro, if you like, you know, familiar with. And so, so he just pulls his, uh, the pole down to him, and he's got that little hammer, which he took up with him, with, with, you know, a hammer made out of a very hard wood, and uh, got the poor fellow with, with the head to uh, uh, finish him off, wrap him up, and throw him down to the ground where his young son or somebody would be waiting and grabs it before, uh, you know, the dogs get into it and they have a meal instead of you, see? Let me tell you, um, I'm... I'm writing these things because nobody writes about it. Not that I know of, and, and I can bet you there's nobody writing this history. This is a history of the place where I grew up. This is a history from the Pacific, the island of Tonga, the village of Awatoro and Korowai. But the catching of the flying foxes like in this manner is a very innovative thing. Tapani, your father was a doctor among yes. one of the first in Tonga. What yes. kind of influence did he have on you? I must say, uh, what you said before, he was actually number eight to to graduate. Uh, and and the, the influence, uh, you, you need to understand this, uh, uh, Bobby. Uh, children in growing up those days are seen, not heard. What influence did I get from my father is that Work hard, determine what you need to do, and go for it. There is a saying that uh, coined by my grandfather, the uttering in Tongan is, and I'll quote it, lotu pe mototalo, means lotu is to pray, to um, uh, dedicate, to persevere, never give up. So you determine your future, your destination, what do you want to do, and go for it, work hard. So, but Bobby, one of the things of the reason, the motivation why I write these things is because after all these years, I grew up in Toronto with my father in the same place, I hardly know him. 
I know him as a good man, as a respected person. Uh, but knowing him, what he's, how he think inside, or anything about him, other than being a doctor. The, so I wanted to put an end to that for my children and my grandchildren and many more grandchildren. Something is a legacy. If they want to know about how a Tongan man lived, as I'm writing an autobiography, a memoir, a history of the self. But of course, when you write the history of the self, you write the history of where you live, the environment you live in. But I lament the fact that I don't know uh, very much at all about my father. And that's why I'm writing these things. What about your mother, Tapani? Uh, much the same. You know, uh, hard, life was hard in those days, you know, in, 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 in the physical sense, in the home. And, and uh, you know, my mom, when I remember, we get up, go to school, Tong High School, catch the bus and, and go to school uh, starting at um, 8.30 or whatever. Most times we were late. Um, you go have to you know, tr- travel 10 or 12 uh, k's to get there on rickety old trucks and open, you know, trays. And my mum would get up at 6 in the morning, you know, prepare some food for us. A typical family at that time would be anything from seven children to 14, you know, ours was uh, 11. And uh, and imagine if you are mum growing up trying to do that, you know. So I'm happy to say that I helped her doing the washing as well, and I'm very good at that. And uh, I helped her, you know, do the cooking, and I'm very good at that. But I wouldn't have liked to be a woman like my mother who grew up in those days. Uh, mm. But anyway, so the, 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 uh, I, I think I can honestly say, and with with pride, that I'm very, very proud and thankful for uh, the work and the sacrifices my parents have given me uh, that has developed into the person that I am. Uh, I, I think I tick more boxes than I cross out. Although that I would have liked to know more about them. You're listening to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber and I'm speaking with Tongan author and publisher Tapani Mangese. Tapani, you've since moved to New Zealand and Australia and those early memories you spoke of have turned into a mission to save the Tongan language through your books. Why are you so passionate about this? Well... <clears throat> All minority languages uh, will, will be lost if we don't do something about it to 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 keep it uh, alive. And um, the reason why I'm passionate about this, what what you have intro before is correct. I was in I left Tongan sixteen and a half under government supervision to come to New Zealand and, and did some training over there. And and look, I I. I I did an apprenticeship in, in refrigeration and air conditioning. But then I found myself in being a leader in my field as a project manager and I built big building and building services. And and uh, I retired 
I mentioned to you, I'm 75. I retired at 65 because I I wanted to, uh, you know, do something else before uh, before I die. And um, uh, I I know some of the uh, languages in the Pacific are dying out. I know that the Tongan lang- language is dying out, and especially when the diaspora. I read about and lament the the Europeans who come here to Australia. They tell me that within three generations, the Greek language disappears. I am first generation here. I lament the fact that uh, my two children uh, can barely speak Tongan, and uh, I admit uh, uh, that's mostly my fault because I didn't talk to them in Tongan, despite the fact that I can. I am very, very fluent in Tongan and as well as in English. So I want to to see the Tongan language in people like myself uh, as good as to be as good in English as they are in Tongan, to be as good as in Tongan as they are in English, like your two hands, left hand, right hand. That's my ultimate aim. And and this the way I write these books is I, I, I write it in English, then I translate the same thing in Tongan. If I help uh, Magic Wand uh, to wail around, this is how I would want the Tongan language to survive. And if we do it like this, it will survive, and, you know, for people like myself who live overseas. And there's more and more people who live overseas. The fact is, I think the Tongan language will not die. But the Tongan people, some Tongan people will move overseas. They will miss the Tongan language. But language is the backbone of culture. If you lose your language, you lose your, your traditions, your, you know, you lose your your arts. Language, you must help the language. And and this is the reason why I'm I'm writing this. And unfortunately, a lot of the Tongans, capable Tongans, they write mostly in English. And and most of the things that written about Tongan, like I'm writing about the history of the self in my village in Amaratoro. You know, the history of Tonga is mostly written by non-Tongans, mostly English, in English by English people. And I want Tongans who can speak English to please try, you know, writing it in, in, in both languages. Tabani, how do you feel when you actually write about your early memories? I feel very good that I'm I'm doing. Actually, I'm walking the walk instead of uh, just talking about it. Yeah. And and that's a challenge that I throw out there for my contemporaries who are are just as capable and I'm not, you know, being, you know, uh, high big-headed here. Capable, they are dead. Very, very fluent in Tongan and fluent in English. Please write your story. You don't have to go to the U.S. Congress and you know any library to just write what you see, what you saw in that particular time. 
in the style that I'm writing is to be written in, in small paragraphs of three or five to five language uh, uh, sentences and it's translated interwovenly like that. I, I, I'm no big deal. I'm just a very ordinary fellow, very, very ordinary. But if, if a fellow like me can do this, I can tell you anybody else can do it. If you can do that, that's, uh, uh, it'll be good. When, but I can say that um, some of the feedbacks I, I get from people who have uh, read my books, they tell me that it gives them a sense of warmth. Uh, they feel happy. It revives memory of their past. Exactly the same. I'm not unique, you know. Most of the old people are just like me, you know. And, and, and it revives them. It playing their marbles in their different mango tree in, you know, miles away in, in, the, in other villages. And they feel very warm and happy and roll about with laughter and end up crying. Hmm. And I write back to some of that bit. I say, you're not alone. When I write my books, the memories brings me tears. But I'm happy. What have been some of the most emotional moments for you during the writing process? It, um, I think a lot about uh, the thing that I'm missing out on uh, not knowing my father. I write about the my interaction with uh, one of the most famous rugby uh, person in, in Tonga, who was my schoolmate at school, yet I don't know much about him. His name is Shirley Mathi. He was voted uh, rugby number eight in the world. Um, and I, uh, I write about uh, the time that we were spent at uh, school in the 1950s, and, and uh, you know, and I found myself crying. And uh, I think about the time when I spent my first Christmas in New Zealand, that uh, uh, I was 17 and a half at that time in Wellington. I remember exactly as clear as I'm talking here, listening to here, every bit, you know, that I spent my Christmas over there for one reason or another, I was supposed to go down to Auckland and all my maids, not that I had very many, but were disappeared and I ended up staying in a, in a, in a strange ho uh, hostel, but the hostel I was um, staying in, you know, it was closed down. And, um, I just spending Christmas is a time to spend with family, and I was totally, totally alone. Probably the most, my loneliest time in my whole life, you know. Mm -hmm. And I cried a lot, and had Christmas dinner of a tin of bully beef and half a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, but then there uh, there was a, a low side. Uh, I, uh, I, I I tell my story, you know, how I left Tonga, for instance, at 16 and a half with 14 shillings in my pocket and, and one change of clothing and uh, 
a small handbag that, you know, like a carry bag you carry into the airplane. But uh, that's it. And, and life here, you know, I started school in Tonga writing on a slate. And that is uh, on a slate. What do people know about slate? They, they, they know about slate is a, a roofing piece of material. You know, it's a stone, but they and, and they may use it for roofing. That was knocked up by uh, uh, some people, manufacturers, into a like an A4 piece with framing around it, and that's what we used to write on. I'm a caveman. Seven, you know, in in the 1950s in my primary school, I wrote on a slate. Here, I'm communicating to you on the computer. We talk through the air and we communicate. And I write, you know. Um, so time changed. And I, I think about those days, uh, you know, people these days, they they know more about how to, my, my, my grandchildren, you know, can operate the, the remote for TVs and telephones, the same as I was. When I was that age of my granddaughter, that's, you know, texting away here on my phone to, her mother saying, I'm at grandpa's place, blah, blah, blah. At that time, same age, I was writing on a slate. <laughs> Finally, Tapani, it's incredible you were writing this all down in English and Tongan. What would happen if more people were doing that? What would happen if more people would do that? Uh, I think it can only be pluses everywhere. And imagine... If 10,000 people like me in Tonga do this, the whole history of Tonga will be written because all these things are interconnected. And what I write is very much the same as what happens to my siblings. And I can tell you, it will be if, 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 if 100 people, if I know 100 people who write the way their memories in the way that I write, it's written in two colors, interwoven, you know, the, the text. And, and, and if, if, if I urged my people who are Tonga High School, the best school in Tonga, and we, we learn English there compulsorily. When I was in Tonga, in Tonga High School, and still up to now, the, lang- the, the, the English language is spoken only, or the English only is spoken in the compound school compound, which is your day, you know, you spend your day speaking to your friends in English. And when you are out of that, of course, you go home and you speak in Tongan. But, but I will be very happy. I'm looking forward and, 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 and wish to share my, as a very humble and, and, and uh, hopeful person to try and contribute to saving the Tongan language. The more people they, they, they write uh, the Tongan language from their perspective and not other non-Tongans, uh, that will make me very happy. And uh, I, I hope that, uh, and, and I, I stand happy to to help people to get there and, 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 and write it, and I'll be willing to help them uh, publish it as well. Tapani Malo, yeah. thank you so much for your passion and for sharing your memories of your childhood. No problems at all.
That was Tongan author and publisher Sione Tepani Mangisi. You've been listening to Stories from the Pacific. I'm Bobby McCumber. And to catch more great stories about incredible people from the Pacific, just search for ABC Pacific. There are so many amazing stories from the Pacific interviews, like this one with anti-nuclear activist Hina Cross from French Polynesia. It's really in 2018 that at the age of 30 that I'm going to become aware of the consequences of uh, the nuclear testing. And I was really shocked to realize that we have been uh, 193 nuclear bombs, whereas I thought they have been like uh, three or five and I, at the same time, I discovered the list of radiation-induced illness, illnesses. And in this list, I recognize uh, the illnesses of the woman in fa- my family. And me, uh, in 2013, I was diagnosed with uh, leukemia. If you've missed an episode of Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia, just search for the program wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people.